1: Millions of people depend on it every day. It saves so many lives, and it's now needed more than ever. Insulin was discovered 100 years ago. How did it come about, and what might the next 100 years hold? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show... A century on from the discovery of insulin, why is it still inaccessible in much of the world?
2: It's possible that far less than you know, 10% of people in the world who need insulin actually can get it.
1: And can insulin be made smarter?
3: Potentially, once the technology is moving forward, even more, one can start to think about one injection every few days or once a week.
1: Before insulin was discovered in 1921, type 1 diabetes was practically a death sentence. Type 1 diabetes is a chronic condition in which the pancreas produces little or no insulin, a natural hormone that regulates the amount of sugar in the blood. In the past, patients would often be put on restrictive diets, which could buy them a few months or maybe years. Some died of starvation. The disease was known about since the ancient Egyptians, but was little understood. The Greek physician Aretaeus gave diabetes its name, meaning to pass through, since people with the condition need to pee frequently. It was often diagnosed by tasting sweetness in the urine of those affected. Yes, that's what I said. In 1889, Joseph von Mering and Oskar Minkowski at the University of Strasbourg in France made a key finding. They removed the pancreases of dogs, and the animals would go on to develop diabetes and die soon afterwards. The proven
0: vaccines of preventive medicine...
1: The real breakthrough, though, came more than 30 years later.
0: The epic-making discovery of doctors Banting and Best, the all-essential insulin which has made life possible for the diabetic, old or young.
3: Well, Louie has diabetes, and he's going to have to have insulin.
0: What's insulin?
3: Insulin is a new medicine that makes it possible for thousands of boys like you, who have diabetes, to live and play just like other boys.
1: A medical scientist named Frederick Banting convinced the director of the University of Toronto's physiological laboratory, John McLeod, to let him and a med student, Charles Best, borrow lab space to investigate this link. They found an ingenious way to reverse the effects of diabetes. They first took out the pancreases of dogs to artificially induce diabetes, as the previous researchers had done. After months of experiments, they then removed an extract from the pancreatic islet cells of a healthy dog and injected it into a dog with diabetes called Marjorie they managed to keep her alive for 70 days before she died of an infection. This sacrifice, however, was a turning point, as it marked the first animal to be kept alive by this new treatment. The substance they injected would later be named insulin. The story of Banting and Best and their quest to solve a medical mystery is legendary in the history of science. But as is often the case, things are not so simple.
0: Without being a too controversial, Banting got the credit because he genuinely believed that he had discovered insulin. I'm Stuart Bradwell, I am an expert on the history of insulin at Strathclyde University and I'm currently writing a book for the centenary. The traditional story of insulin being discovered is that Banting and Best in 1921 performed some experiments on dogs and isolated it and gave it to a very sick child who was saved. That is to a point true, but pancreatic extracts of the same kind had been being used for many years before that experimentally with some success. People had actually been using marginally effective pancreatic extracts to try to treat diabetes since 1905, 1906 in Germany, but didn't ever get any traction because those extracts were not consistently effective. The reason Banting and Best's extract did work was because of the work of James Collip, who was a biochemist working with them, and he purified that extract to make it clinically viable.
1: Banting would go on to win the 1923 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, along with the researcher John MacLeod, for discovering insulin. But there were still quarrels within the team
0: about who should get credit. Nobody really did think too hard about how to apportion credit outside of the immediate team, which did mean that because it was Banting's big idea to ligate the pancreatic duct, he was given precedence and nobody challenged it because, you know, more important things were happening at the time. A lot of very sick children who otherwise would have died were being resurrected, essentially, so it seemed almost an afterthought to sort of nitpick about which members of the team had contributed what.
1: The men would go on to sell the patent for insulin to the University of Toronto for just a single dollar, hoping to ensure that the treatment was available to everyone at low cost. In a television interview in 1959 after Banting had died, Charles Best spoke about how this life-saving substance was deeply personal to both of them.
3: I had an aunt who had diabetes. She was a nurse. And uh, she died in diabetic coma in 1918. Three years before Three years. insulin came along. Fred Banting watched a classmate of his, a little girl of 14, die of diabetes. I think he was stimulated to select diabetes as his research by that happening, too.
1: Sitting next to him was Dr. Robert Daniel Lawrence, one of the first patients to be successfully treated with insulin.
3: Oh yes, no child lived a year after diagnosis of diabetes, no. before insulin. And today, these children, well, Well, they're growing up, marrying and reproducing, producing children
1: of their own. Insulin transformed type 1 diabetes from a fatal disease to a health condition where treatment became a part of everyday life. It is now used across the world daily by millions of patients. But accessibility is still a problem.
0: Accessibility is going to become a major crisis very quickly if we don't do something about it because huge, huge rates of diabetes are being seen specifically in industrialising countries like India and China, where the rates of diabetes and insulin requirements are absolutely skyrocketing. And that is going to be a demographic catastrophe if the infrastructure and the resources aren't there to deal with that when it comes.
2: Estimates suggest that over 460 million people in the world have diabetes. Every single person with type 1 diabetes should be treated with insulin. And then a portion of people who have type 2 diabetes can benefit from insulin as well. My name is Jennifer Manny Guler, and I'm a physician scientist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School.
1: Dr. Manny Guler is one of the authors of a new global study investigating the vast under-treatment of diabetes around the world.
2: The current understanding is that certainly less than half the people that need insulin can get it, but it's possible that far less than, you know, 10% of people in the world who need insulin actually can get it.
1: What else did you find in your research?
2: In general, we find that patterns of diabetes care, people have least access in countries that are least developed, where the least money is spent per capita on healthcare, and that we really are trying to think about diabetes as a population-level problem that requires solutions that are not only tied to the financial resources um, of a particular health system. So how can we develop solutions to these gaps that aren't only dependent on having a lot of money to spend necessarily. And you know, HIV provides a really nice example of this problem, of trying to think of solutions that are systemic, that can reach everyone, and that can help support countries that may have more limited resources.
1: What is the lesson from HIV? How does that work?
2: I think there are a ton of lessons that HIV can actually provide us. Some of them are global, some of them are more about individual health systems especially as relates to insulin, things like pre-qualification of drugs is a big one. So WHO providing infrastructures to evaluate the quality of products that may be able to be made available more cheaply, like generics and biosimilars. So I think things like this infrastructure that we've developed at the international level to try to evaluate these drugs and make them, frankly, more cheaply so that everyone can get access to them. That's one example of global health infrastructure that was developed very much with HIV in mind, but can be used so beautifully in a way for things like insulin.
1: Isn't this a wider problem of healthcare systems being inadequate, or are healthcare systems just not paying enough attention to diabetes as a condition?
2: I think about the world as a place where millions of people are not getting what they need from their health systems. And sometimes that's because the health system is resource constrained. But there are these giant problems. You know, in the 90s, HIV was that giant problem. And I think that actually, even though it's funny to say this under COVID, I think that metabolic disease, obesity and diabetes are one of the defining problems of our century They are even with COVID underlying kind of some of the places where we see people being hospitalized at really high rates. We think obesity and diabetes are two of the biggest risk factors for bad outcomes. So I think that we have to think about diabetes as a problem that is not just about putting lots of resources into only one patient, but how do we make these treatment concepts something that can be translated into many contexts? And so I think That it requires, and this is what happened in HIV, and it's currently what's sort of been happening, I think, a little bit in the hypertension world, is trying to make a complicated medical problem into something that nurses and community health workers and, you know, and of course, physicians are able to understand and execute the principles of diagnosis and treatment effectively across many health systems and not making it something that's only available to people with the greatest amount of resources. And so that's part of the way we think about improving care for diabetes.
1: Access to insulin isn't only an issue in lower-income countries. Even in some wealthy countries, insulin is too expensive for many without insurance. Stuart Bradwell again.
0: Insulin accessibility for a country as wealthy as the U.S. should be essentially ubiquitous, but it's not. It's probably harder to get a hold of affordable insulin in the United States than it is in any other country in the world. I mean, the cost of insulin for an average person who requires it in the States at the moment without insurance is upwards of $1,000 a month, which is, I mean, that, that that just seems absurd to me. I, I don't know how people survive with that kind of burden. And uh, the truth of it is that quite a few of them simply don't survive. They do ration their insulin. They do just die. There's no two ways around it.
1: Coming up, what does the future hold for insulin treatments? Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Insulin has made life possible for those with type 1 diabetes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's convenient.
4: There are two main elements to managing type 1 diabetes— It's about monitoring blood sugar levels, and it's also about injecting insulin and the right amount of insulin when it's required.
1: That's one of my cherished Babbage producers, Jason Hoskin. He's been living with type 1 diabetes since he was 16 years old.
4: People with type 1 diabetes have to inject themselves with insulin several times a day. Now, the routine varies, but usually people have to do it once or twice a day to provide like a baseline level of the hormone. So this is like a longer acting insulin. And then people like me need additional shots of a faster acting insulin whenever we eat. Wait, every time you eat, you have to shoot up? Yes, that's correct. The amount that you need varies depending on how much you eat. I have to count the amount of carbohydrates I'm eating. And then from there, I can work out the dosage. But it also varies from person to person, so it depends on, like, biological and lifestyle factors, and also how much body mass you have. This seems like a total hassle. So what's the kit? I have an insulin pen. It sort of looks like a highlighter. So what you do is you screw a small needle onto the end of it. You turn up the dial to the number of units of insulin that you need. And then when you're ready to go, you just push down gently on the top of the pen and that injects the insulin. But for some people, insulin pumps make the routine easier. So these are like devices that sit on a patient's waist, and they continually provide insulin through like a small tube and a cannula. But they don't automate the process. You have to do the calculation of dosage yourself, but they just mean that there's this continual drip of insulin going into your body. Patients also need to keep a close eye on their blood sugar levels. This typically
1: involves finger prick testing. It's recommended that patients do this as much as they possibly can during the day to monitor their sugar levels as well as
4: they can. Do you have to do a finger prick test? So fortunately, Ken, I don't have to do finger prick testing anymore. So I now have what's called a flash glucose monitor. This is a sensor. It's kind of the size of a two-pound coin in Britain. It's got a little plastic filament that's embedded under the skin. And this measures the sugar level in the interstitial fluid That measures it around the clock, and then I scan either my phone or a device that's made by the manufacturer. And this tells me how much sugar there is in my interstitial fluid, which is a good proxy for blood sugar level. Now, what's good about this system is that an alarm goes off if my sugar is too high or too low. And it's continually reading the levels.
1: Continuous glucose monitors operate in a similar way. That saves the need for painful finger prick testing. But the devices are expensive, so not everyone who needs one can get one.
5: The reason why type 1 diabetes is so difficult to manage is because every day is different and in principle every hour is different.
1: Roman Hovorka is a professor at the University of Cambridge and he runs the artificial pancreas group. This combines the developments in blood glucose monitoring and insulin pumps with an algorithm to better control a patient's diabetes.
5: The artificial pancreas takes these frequent decision making out of the person's hands and does it automatically behind the scene. So, what it does, it takes a glucose sensor to measure or to read glucose levels, it sends the information through an algorithm, which could be sitting on a phone or some similar device. And that algorithm all the time would be thinking how much insulin should be given to achieve the optimal glucose levels. This insulin is then administered by insulin pump. So we basically need three devices, the glucose sensor, we need the the brain, the algorithm, and then we need the insulin pump, which actually delivers the insulin.
1: And what specific benefits will the patient see from having an artificial pancreas?
5: Twofold. A, the glucose is better. There has been a strong clinical data showing that there's an improved glucose control, more time spent in what is called the target range and a lower risk of the hypoglycemia, the low glucose levels. But for some people and families, what is even more important is the burden of type 1 diabetes. It is the time amount they spend on managing type 1 diabetes. It goes down, it's reduced. People sleep better, families, parents sleep better. So it depends really on the individuals whether they prefer the improved glucose control or the improved quality of life.
1: Now, how soon until patients see this technology in the field?
5: It is now. It is there. We currently in the UK, we have three system approved. More will be coming as well. There are additional in development. What is really the barrier right now is not the availability. It is the clinical inertia and the system inertia and the postcode lottery. It is a new technology. It needs to make available. There is the reimbursement um, issues. There's also the um, training issues, involved in clinical health professionals in understanding these technologies here.
1: When the technology becomes widely accessible, artificial pancreas systems have the potential to dramatically benefit the lives of those with type 1 diabetes. Other improvements could come not through external technology, but by altering the formulation of insulin itself.
3: The problem about insulin administration for people with diabetes is that the amount of insulin you put inside your body, you basically need to wait until all the insulin to lose its effect. Danny Cho is an assistant
1: professor of pediatrics, specializing in diabetes at Stanford University.
3: If you inject too much insulin, it could lead to a very low blood glucose levels and that's Very bad because that can potentially lead to some of those hypoglycemic situations. People will be in coma or sometimes in the uh, the worst scenario, it will lead to death. Dr. Cho is working
1: on developing SMART or glucose-sensing insulin. Insulin's main objective is to reduce hyperglycemia. Those are the high blood sugar events that lead to long-term complications. SMART insulin aims to reduce the likelihood of that as well as hypoglycemia. Those are the dangerous low blood sugar events.
3: The so-called smart insulin or glucose sensing insulin, basically people try to control the activity of insulin inside your body as a function of glucose. So that means that we only want the insulin to be active when the blood glucose level is high, because that means the time that you need your insulin to be active. However, if your insulin is in a normal situation or, you know, a little bit lower than normal, you don't want your insulin to be active at all. So by using a glucose sensing insulin, you want your glucose sensor, in this case, to shut down the activity of insulin. So in this case, you don't need to worry about those hypoglycemic risk. So that's the reason why people call it smart insulin, because it can potentially remove quite some acute side effects here.
1: And for patients, it probably means fewer daily injections?
3: Uh, Yes, potentially. One of the reasons why we need daily multiple injections is because the dose you inject in is very critical. So you need to make sure that you only inject the perfect dose for the need you need right now. So in the case, say, if a small insulin is basically as good as what we described, and this could be something that you can inject quite a bit inside your body. And then if there's no need, these insulin should stay dormant and it should not affect your glucose levels at all. And whenever you are eating something, the insulin should become active again. And then that would be the case to control itself. So in this case, one may think about in a, you only need one injection a day. And then potentially, once the technology is moving forward even more, one can start to think about once every few days or once a week.
1: Now, smart insulin has been promised for some time now. Why do you think it's taken so long to materialize, and are you confident that it will finally materialize?
3: Yes. So basically, I would say, starting as early as late seventies, this concept was introduced, and then people should start to think about how we can achieve that. And I would say that the reason why is still not materialized yet. It's not because of lack of trying from scientists in multiple generations. It's really because this is a very difficult question. And then what we are handling in terms of, say, the glucose range, because our blood glucose is very, very well regulated by our physiology. So basically, for us to just use a one molecule to replace all of those communications is actually very difficult. Something I can say that is I do believe that this will one day, you know, become a real product for people with diabetes.
1: Smart insulin might still be some way away, but drug companies are continuing to develop regular insulin to work better or to be less expensive. At the end of July, the American Food and Drug Administration approved the first interchangeable biosimilar insulin for the treatment of diabetes. A biosimilar drug is one that is considered highly similar, that is to say, it has no meaningful difference to its pricier brand-name counterpart, which has already been approved by the FDA. In this instance, the biosimilar insulin was deemed to be interchangeable with a product called Lantus, which is one of the most common brands of long-acting insulin.
3: I think this is a very, very important milestone. This is a great addition to the whole repertoire here, and then this for sure will make the cost of insulin collagen to drop. And then I think this is a great thing because a lot of times we are able to purchase over-the-counter drugs in pharmacies with very low prices, but most of them are small molecule drugs because it's easier to define generic drug. Insulin has been always kind of in this gray zone in a way that it's hard to define that. So. Basically, now we have the first example of a real biosimilar insulin here and I think this is going to make the whole affordability problem much better.
1: More approvals like this could go a long way to improving access to insulin. In the last century, insulin has gone from a scientist's hypothesis to a lifesaver. In the coming decades, technology could save yet more lives. But in the next 100 years, could the need for monitoring and treatments be removed completely? Could diabetes be cured?
5: The key objective in this space is not to treat Taiwan diabetes, it's to cure Taiwan diabetes. Roman
1: Havorka again.
5: An enormous amount has been put into trying to stop the immune attack on the pancreatic beta cells.
3: One of the very important area is called the beta cell regeneration field. So basically, in people with type 1 diabetes, unfortunately, the beta cells are self-destroyed by the immune system. So one thing they are trying to do is how can they generate new beta cells outside the body such that they can further transplant that into the patient. So this will be something that will be something very close to cure if we cannot call it a cure. And then this is something that potentially people don't need any insulin injections at all throughout their life. Type
5: 1 diabetes has been cured in small rodents' animals about 20 or 50 times. Uh, humans are a little bit more challenging than that, so no cure has been obtained so far. I think what we are learning is type 1 diabetes results not from a single cause, but from multiple causes. So it's possible for some causes we will find the cure sooner and later. People are working very hard, but it is more difficult problem than it was thought originally.
1: New technologies are poised to improve life for people with diabetes even more, provided they can become widely available. After 100 years, insulin has transformed people's lives, and it would be a credit to the scientific endeavor if one day there may not be a need for synthetic insulin at all. Our thanks to Stuart Bradwell, Jennifer Maniguler, Roman Havorka, and Danny Cho. And thank you for listening. Now to get more analysis like this, be sure to subscribe to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. Our producers are William Warren, the insulin injecting Jason Hoskin, and our thanks to Carla Vitella for additional production help. Sandra Schmueli is the program's editor. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist.